Hello, everyone, and welcome to the newest edition of the Haskincast podcast, the follow-up episode with Robin Cote, and uh, definitely excited to share the rest of this interview with you guys. It was just a, a marathon of, of fun talking to her, even talking about dark and difficult subjects with the right people. It, it can be uh, an enjoyable conversation, and you learn a lot. You can uh, discover ideas and, and suggestions and all kinds of things, as you heard if you listened to the first episode. This episode uh, changes gears quite a bit. We talk about uh, something that she did when she was younger and also uh, about her career in radio and some of the people she's interviewed, including uh, Ted McKenna, Allison Cheryl Cooper, uh, most recently. And that episode of her show is live, and you can check that out in the link in the show notes. So uh, I am just coming back from NAMM when you hear this, but I'm actually recording this before I've left so that I can get everything uploaded and make sure that the episode is going to be available on time uh, in, in case there's any delays with the show or anything comes up. So I, I thought it was important to do that. Uh, one thing that I really wanted to accomplish with this show is to be consistent. Um, I, I listen to other podcasts from time to time. And one thing I, I love is when a podcast comes out at a certain date, whether it's once a month, whether it's once a week, however they want to do it, but when it's consistent, when you know it's going to be there and it can be some, it can become something that you look forward to. I get happy on Wednesday because I know that this show is going to come out and it's something to look forward to in my week. Uh, I feel it's really difficult if the episodes come out kind of willy-nilly, random, whenever. Uh, as, as a fan, I don't like that. And I know there's other people that don't like that. So I want to try and be consistent. So far, I've been able to have at least one episode every Wednesday. Occasional episodes on Saturday, uh, which I would like to do more of as I get time right now. I'm, I've decided to pursue the uh, revamp of my Addicted album. So I'm working on that. Uh, hopefully I'll have that out sometime around the end of February is the goal. But in this business, you have to be a lot more fluid unless you're working on a contract for someone else. Uh, you have to be willing to put your own personal projects to the side if something else comes in. And there's all kinds of possibilities. I'm talking to a lot of people about a lot of different projects and any of them at any time could come through. I've got a television show theme that I'll be writing soon. Uh, so that will, again, you have to put the personal project on the back burner so that you can do this project so that somebody can get their show out into the world. And that's part of the job. If you want to pursue those kinds of things, I love working on projects with other people. Um, there's some people that are easier to collaborate with than others. Some people that know how to speak to a musician and some that don't. So it's always a challenge. Uh, this person I've known for quite some time and, uh, I'm really excited to be doing the theme for, for their show. And we'll talk more about that as that comes to fruition. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, that's how it goes. But in the meantime, I want to keep being as consistent as possible with the podcast. So my goal is every Wednesday, uh, really it's late Tuesday night, depending on where you live. Um, sometimes it can be early as 10 or 11 on the West coast, if you're on Pacific time. And, uh, it just, it, you know, I, I want to have at least one new episode every week. 
for for you guys and that means a lot to me to show that consistency and to be stable if you're going to support me i want to give you something back to support so that's really important to me uh so anyway let's get back to robin and wrap up our interview with her uh, this one's uh, a little shorter than the other one but still almost an hour so it's uh, a lot of content a lot of fun stuff to talk about uh talked about uh allison cheryl cooper uh, alice is a huge another one just a, a big influence in my career over the years. Uh, I've not uh, gotten the chance to meet Cheryl, but I did get the chance to meet Alice briefly last year at the NAMM show. Uh, A very nice guy. Everything I've ever heard about him or an interview that I've listened to, podcast, whatever, um, just very nice, very down-to-earth genuine guy. He plays a character on a stage, and he's very, very good at it. Uh, I got to see him on Halloween night back in 87 on the Raise Your Fist and Yell tour. And the show was phenomenal in, in Detroit at Joe Louis Arena. And then I got to see him at uh, the Chelsea Theater here at the Cosmo in Vegas last uh, August. Uh, or was it a year ago? I think it was a year ago, August already now, uh, when it was Edgar Winter, Alice Cooper, and headlining uh, band was Deep Purple. Amazing show. Probably the best show I've ever been to. And, uh, you know, it's it's a joy to be able to connect and hear about more of these people, who they are as people, and not just what our anticipation or belief or expectation of them is as an artist or who we think they are in their personal life based on what we know of their their uh, the art that, that they create. It's a very weird world when it comes to celebrity and artists and, and things. I think people tend to have a, a unique judgment about them based on the connection that they've made with them. Uh, and, and everything is very personal. I mean, I can like a band and you might like the same band and we might like the same songs, but our connection to those songs is going to be a very personal connection based on, you know, the things that we've been through and the way that we view life and all that. So I always find it interesting to, to learn more about the artists and who they are as people, as opposed to just the artist stuff. Now I will be fair. If I were to interview Alice Cooper, there definitely are a couple songs I would love to learn more about the creation of those songs, the process of, of how they came into play, because they are songs that that reach me on a different level. So, yeah, I would ask those questions, but I would also want to know more about him as a person, you know, things that I don't already know, obviously, uh, and that I would hope that you guys might not know or be interested in as well. Uh, but I, I right now don't have the ability to, uh, to interview him, but who knows one day, but you know, of the people that I do interview, there's projects that you want to know about, but there's also other things. And that's what I really try to reach. And uh, I think we nailed that with Robin this week. Uh, as we, as we wrap up the second half of her interview, uh, we, we definitely find out some interesting stuff about her life. So, uh, without further ado, let's get to Robin. I don't know if you want to talk about this next part, but I, I want to talk about it. So if you Go don't, for just, it. just tell me. But Go for uh, it. you were a glow girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I loved this show as cheesy as it was. And it was very cheesy. The interviews, the the little skits and things that they did. I loved that about the show. I mean, you kind of accepted it as this is how it is. I love the California Dolls little uh, like little snippets of intelligence that she would have. Uh, Spike and Chainsaw, all those. It was just a great show because it 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 made fun of how silly wrestling was at the time, 
but yeah. also it was entertaining to watch. Like you kind of wanted to find out what was going to happen on, on the next week. Like they drew you in and made you care about these people, even though it was very comedic. They were, it was kind of like a soap opera. Yes. How did you end up getting involved with that? <laughs> well, the funny thing is, is I'm not really officially branded a glow girl because um, I was working at a radio station when they had a match at the Coliseum here years ago. And I happened to be um, working as one of the commentators, just kind of helping out, you know, get people into the mood before the wrestling match started. And this was back when it was called the WWF. And I believe Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper were the main match of the night. And um, that must have been a big event then. That was a long time ago. It was at the Coliseum here, the Veterans Memorial Coliseum. And being there as part of the radio station staff, I I was actually underage at this time. I was almost, you know, close to 18, but not legitimately 18. And uh, I ended up running into a few people who worked with GLOW. And they looked at me and saw my stature and thought, well, you know, why don't we ask? Because I was making, you know, menacing faces and being silly up there in the ring and stuff. And I got asked if I would consider being a wrestler. And I actually, you know, signed a contract and everything to go to the school to learn the choreography that they do. And as you see in the show, that's part of the, the whole thing where you're auditioning and you're doing all of that. And I was not part of the televised group because that that takes on a whole different thing. You have to move, you have to do all these other things. And I just had a I just had a kid not long before that. I was newly married, so that wasn't something that was going to happen. But they had what they called um, the West Coast Girls of Glow. That basically, you know, we did events to get people interested in things. Okay. So um, I would be in events here and wrestle in weird things um pudding jello uh the weirdest one i ever wrestled in was chili don't ask chili. me why they chili huh. yes yeah weird okay. stuff just some exhibition type matches but i i was never in the major glow league where they were televised because they had their their select people they wanted for that but they had us doing promotions around the west coast so i would do promotions here and eventually i got fired for it because when we were applying for a loan for a house they verified you know all my employers at the time because i was doing different things and they called to verify my date of birth and somebody in hr had figured out that i was underage at the time uh. And I was let go and I never had access to anything. They took everything away, but there was someone that actually sent me a photograph of a match I was in years, years ago. And it just showed up one day in, in my email and said, Hey, is this you? I'm like, yeah, where'd you get that? I actually took that picture of you. So I have one photograph mm -hmm. from my days. And the funny thing is, when the TV series came out on Netflix, I had a whole slew of people say, hey, 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 are you in it? It's like, what you don't realize, guys, those are actors. They're not real wrestlers. <laughs> right, yeah. The, the Globe part took part in the 80s. 
This was in the 80s when Glow was around. Yeah. And it wasn't around for very long. I think it was only around for like five years, four or five years. It didn't stick around very long because of, you know, things that had happened and the promotion. They moved them from one place to another. And I always stayed in Arizona. I only went to, to Vegas once and did a match. But I was never part of the legal roster because we weren't on the TV show. Right. And Yeah, I think they, they used to wrestle at the Riviera here, didn't they? Yeah. And um, that was part of where they were. And the funny thing is, when the first episode, if you... I, I've had so many people say it's in reference to me because none of the girls' IDs were checked. From what I remember, I never had my ID checked. And... The first one of the first scenes in the first show was the girl in the locker room where they were asking for her ID. Right. I remember that. Which someone said, would that happen to have been about you? I said, I don't know. I can't take credit for that. But, you know, it would be kind of funny if it were a reference to me. I don't have any clue if it is, but I don't think anybody really knows of my existence in that because there's nothing really tangible tying me to it other than one phonograph and this interview well (laughs) it's been it's been talked about plenty of times but it's just something i make fun of because you know it, it, it was a dumb thing to do it was fun it was silly and i never imagined myself being on a televised match or being part of the group that that was you know i i was nothing compared to those women i mean those women were were something else. Well, they so. they went through an incredible amount of training, though, uh, to to be able to do what they did on TV. And yeah. I have no doubt that had you been put through that same level of training, you would have eventually been able to get to that point. Um, had you been able to continue, but from what I I saw in the documentary, because there was uh, there's the the sh- the new show on Netflix, which is really loosely based on Glow, right? It's the same premise but and and i'm sure that they have talked to and interviewed a lot of the wrestlers and maybe used some of those stories like that could have very well been you in the first episode but the the episode from episode to episode that's not what happened in the real glow that's just the you know the premise of the show um right but when you look back on it i think it's a really cool thing that you did it because in life a lot of times we have opportunities to have experiences and you can either do what I tend to do most of the time and go, Oh yeah, you know, that sounds fun, but I I have something else that means more to me than that and not experience those things. Or you can be the kind of person that goes out and goes, you know what? I think that'd be fun. That'd be a hoot. I'm going to do it and just see where it goes. That's the whole thing, Scott. You know, I've been extremely lucky in a lot of ways. Not that any of these really turned out to be paying careers. But, you know, in the end, the funny thing is, is that whole thing with the wrestling led me to do roller derby for a short time. Then after that, I got into doing stunt work because I was in the right place at the right time. So I, at my first stunt work, I rode a bull and got hooked in the butt cheek. <gasps> made good, Made really good money. But, you know, I started doing stunt work, which was fun. And then there were other things that happened when I went to when I went to college to get my associates in radio and journalism. I saw a TV show on late at night when I got home. I called up the phone number. I became their promotions director for a TV show here. And then while I was working for that TV show, I was out 
talking to the club owners and a magazine had just been delivered to the club and the girl said, this is right up your alley. You should call them. I became the assistant editor, one of the senior writers and the head it, it, pretty much second in command of that magazine. Now, none of those jobs ever paid, mm-hmm. but the fringe benefits I got from those things and the experiences that I got, I can't trade that for anything. So the biggest thing and I've heard so many people in this world talk about this, the motivational guys that get up there and talk about it. Don't say no, say yes. Right. What have you got to lose by saying yes? If it doesn't hurt you, if it doesn't hurt someone else, if it's not illegal, say yes to it. I mean, you never know what this experience is going to do for you. And I've always been in that position where I've had even the job I have now, I was at a radio for 12 years mm-hmm. and I happened to go up in that building in a meeting one day and we were making jokes about me and another person having a radio show because we knew these people. And then they said, well, why don't you bring this other famous broadcaster in here? We'll train Robin to produce his show. You guys will get a show out of the deal. So I'm in their training and the next thing I know, somebody quits their job that day and they're looking around to hire somebody. and. The GM goes, she's sitting in the room right next door. Right. Let's offer her a job. So you have to be able to say yes. You've got to just look at it from the standpoint, okay, why is this happening? Why is the universe letting this happen right now? What have I got to lose by saying yes to it? If I don't like it, I don't have to keep doing it. But who's to say that it might not be something that that catapults you to where you want to be? Or connects you with the right person, you know, and I look at a lot of situations like that. I'm like, I don't know why this is happening, but there must be a bigger reason. Maybe it's somebody I'm going to meet or something that I'm going to see that's going to inspire a different artwork or something for me. Uh, When I, when I was really young, I think I was what, 15 when we left Michigan and moved to Colorado. And shortly after we got there, they were filming uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade with Sean Connery uh, down in uh, Southern Colorado. And it was been a couple hours drive, but I was only 15. So I didn't have access to a vehicle and I couldn't go. And I, there was some part of me that always regretted not being there for that experience. And so when I saw that uh, they had an ad out looking for extras for Jason Bourne uh, and they were, they shot a good chunk of that film here in Vegas, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go because I didn't last time. And I really wish I had. And now I have the opportunity and I'm going to do it. And it was a very long day, but I had a blast shooting with them. It was a a wonderful experience. I have great memories. I made it into the movie and into the trailer. Uh, Only if you know where to look. I mean, I'm not, you know, even though I think I'm the unsung hero of the movie, I'm in it like for a nanosecond. Um, But it was a great experience. And I'm really glad I did that. I look back on that day very fondly. So, yeah, I agree with you. Absolutely. And you you have to, because my first experience of getting into the film industry happened the same way. I grew up in Mesa. I rode a bicycle down the street in front of a used car lot up on Main Street. All these lights and cameras and everything going on. This guy comes up to me, says, hey, you want to be in a movie? Of course, you know, back in that day and age, you didn't have to think about it being a creeper. You saw everything going on. So I look over and I see Kurt Russell. Now, I grew up a Disney kid, and I'm looking at Kurt Russell, and I'm just going, oh, 
<gasps> you know, gasped. Mm-hmm. So I took that paper home, got it signed, came up the next day, played a bratty child on the movie Used Cars, and there you go. No kidding. I didn't know that. I'm going to have to go mm-hmm. back and watch that again. I, I think Kurt Russell is one of the best actors we've had. Oh, dude, I absolutely. That was like the pinnacle moment for me as a kid because. Being on set with him, it's like a good thing they didn't give me any speaking lines because I don't know if I'd be able to. <laughs> did you see the the new movie he did where he's Santa Claus? Oh, the best Santa Claus movie I've seen in years. Yeah, I, I have to give them total props because it's because these days making a Christmas movie is almost so cliche, almost like making a Christmas album, which is why I do, you know, sort of horror Christmas albums now. I love it. <laughs> Thanks. But uh, I thought it was really good. I thought it was a different take on the story. I thought it was pretty inspiring. I like that he wasn't just jolly and happy about everything. It was really a more humanistic portrayal of Santa. I don't ho, ho, ho. Yeah, that was the, that was my favorite part. But you know, now we, we've seen enough movies and, and you've read enough scripts. You know that at some point at the end of the movie, when you say I'm not going to do something, he's going to do it by the end of the movie. And it'll be towards Absolutely. the end. And it's going to be for, for the kid that, that said, I want you to do it. Like, he'll make that happen. And so I find it really difficult to watch movies now because I can predict a lot of that stuff based on those little clues that they drop throughout the film. Do you find that same thing for you? A lot of times, yeah, because when you work on a movie script, when you actually write one or when you learn one and you're an actor, you're kind of like, all right, well, what's what's the letdown moment? Like you said, you always know where that moment's going to be. It's always something at the very end. And it's like, Ugh, okay, I knew this was coming. Or you can actually predict everything throughout the entire movie. And, the, and movies do become predictable. There are some that will catch you. And it just takes, I mean, one of the, one of the best ones I've seen is Inception Mm -hmm. where there you're just multiple levels consistently going on and you're just looking at this going, holy cow. But then again, it took him what, 10 years to write that. Right. Right. Exactly. But, but I love the way it came out and it's a great score by Hans Zimmer on that movie, by the way. Yeah. Um, Last thing I want to ask you about, um, and, and this might be a little bit more difficult, but uh, obviously we just found out that Ted McKenna passed away, fantastic drummer. And uh, I, he's somebody that definitely had uh, quite an impact on me as a drummer. Uh, and I finally got to see him perform last year, uh, which I didn't think I was going to get, but they were doing the uh, Michael Schenker Fest and he was part of that. Uh, obviously his other drummer, Cozy Powell, had passed away many years ago. Uh, but you had the pleasure of meeting Ted and talking to him. What was what was he like? Give us give us an idea of him as a person. Just very congenial, very nice. Um, I had the experience of meeting him with Michael Shanker being there, and Michael Shanker is just one of those kind of guys that makes you laugh consistently. So uh, the conversation that we had was not very long. Um, it just felt very comfortable and. You know, I, I've been around Michael Schenker several times, as I was telling you off the air, and the fact that he's constantly making you laugh. And that's what I remember most was just the group of us laughing because uh, Michael was doing Donald Duck sounds. <laughs> just being silly, you know, and it was you're trying to have a serious conversation. You're trying to enjoy being around people. But, you know, I. I'm a journalist and I'm a lover of music. I'm not a drummer 
if I were a drummer, I would have been into the tech side of it. And I would have been like, all right, shut up, Michael. I'm busy talking over here. But <laughs> I I was just enjoying being around them. And it, he's just so, he was just so congenial and just a little quiet at first. But, you know, when Michael was cracking jokes and doing the Donald Duck, it just kind of alleviated any quietness and we were all laughing and it just it felt like I knew these guys for a long time and that's they're so personable you know he was very personable and just very nice yeah and that's that's what I remember the most because if I actually if I actually go back and dig into my archives I know this was recorded so I have a recorded interview with them that's hidden in my archives somewhere you know, back in the day, but just very, very nice. And I can't, no ego, no ego at all, just down to earth. And, you know, you're, you're trying to ask questions and you're trying to have fun, but it was old smart Alec over here kept making the Donald Duck. So <laughs> it, it was just difficult to have an actual conversation, but it was just, it, it just felt comfortable, comfortable, you know, and no ego. And right. there's so many, so many musicians that I've met through the years that come off as egotistical and I, and they turn me off and just to be able to sit down and be amongst these giants. And yeah, they are giants because they've done some incredible stuff in the industry. It's interesting. I, I've met, you know, quite a number of people in, in the music business, obviously, and uh, most of them have been incredibly nice. Uh, the first year that I was at the NAMM show, I remember I kept running into David Crosby just by complete coincidence for like four hours. We just kept bumping into each other and it wasn't, you know, in one spot. It was all over the Anaheim Convention Center, which is pretty large. Uh, so I joked with him and I asked him if he was stalking me and he goes, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 you know, most of the people are very nice. And then every once in a while you do meet somebody who is a little bit too big for their pants and But but in all fairness, there's not a lot of training or preparation for being a well-known person. Absolutely. Even if you have a publicist, a lot of times they can't really tell you how to deal with it. And when I think of things like Michael Jackson dangling, you know, the baby on the balcony or or Britney Spears letting the baby drive the car and things like that. I, I kind of get a little bit of insanity for those people because they've reached a level of fame that no one on earth can tell them how to handle. Right. And a lot of people end up taking their lives because of that type of fame. And it's just very difficult. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I have to tell you, I've being around a lot of them, one of my favorite people, and I actually have a recorded video interview being on their tour bus was uh, Kevin Dubrow. Oh, from Quite Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we all know the tragic story of his overdose that, that killed him, you know, what, 11 years ago, I believe it was, 2007. Oh, it has been that years. long, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah it has. And, and the tragic thing was, I remember my last interview with him, and there's a picture of me immortalized in the magazine because I was caught you know, not wearing anything underneath my skirt. And the editor put that photo in the magazine. But the thing is, I gave Kevin such a hard time because Kevin always had short hair and a balding spot up top. Right. And in this particular tour, he was with Carlos Cavazos, Kenny Hillary, and I'm trying to remember, um, from, uh, was it Frankie Benelli was the drummer, I believe, at that time. Uh-huh. And, and it was so funny because on the tour bus, 
I'm giving him grief because my God, the hair on his head, you would have thought it was like a poodle sitting on his head. He had this humongous mane of hair. And I'm like playing with his hair on camera, giving him a hard time. Well, Kevin, what happened? The last time we saw you, you, you didn't have any hair. In your... And I'm just teasing him. And that's what I love about musicians is sometimes there's just no vanity. And they're yeah. just so human and down to earth. And when you when you lose somebody like that, you go back and you remember those type of memories. And the fact that I got to sit and fondle Kevin's hair for five minutes and make fun of him for having this massive amount of hair and then him saying, yeah, it's my own. The, the only thing that triggered in my mind was, were you doing hair transplants? Right. And I, yeah. Because my God, the hair, of, I mean, I was jealous of that hair. <laughs> and you've got quite a bit of hair yourself. Yeah, but my God, the mane on him, it was like halfway down his back. And I, I swear to God, that's not the Kevin Dubrow I was used to seeing on stage in Quiet Riot when they first came out. Right, and yeah. Would this have been after they got back together? I believe so, because they played, they played the mason jar here in the Valley. And it was funny to see Quiet Riot play the mason jar. But, you know, we went on their tour bus, and I worked for the magazine and the TV show at the time. So I had... My camera guy from the TV show bring the video camera up, and then I had my other guy from the magazine take his camera, and he took pictures of us while we were on the tour bus. And just the idea that I could take a famous person and pick on him like that. Uh, same thing with Stephen Piercy. God, I love the guy. I first ran into Stephen Piercy when I was 17 working at a rock station, and then um, he was in Rat. And one of the best interviews I ever did. And then years later in Arcade, he was touring with Arcade and singing for them. Fred Corey was playing drums. They played the Roxy here. And uh, I actually went up to him and introduced myself, you know, and he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are, are you rocking, Robin, that interviewed me like years ago on that radio station? I'm like, how the hell would you remember that? You want to know what his answer was? What? Because I never slept with you. <laughs> I said, oh, that's what it takes? And, and I looked at him and I said, Stephen, I said, you're a sweetheart. I adore you, but I'm sorry. There's no way in hell I'd sleep with you. I'm not even remotely attracted to you. And that's kind of the rapport that I had with somebody who I hadn't even talked to in like 15 plus years. That you actually, I mean, just these little triggers. And it, it's just when you get to know musicians like that, that are just so famous that, you know, wouldn't normally give you the time of day because you're just some little peon. Right. It's it's like incredible to be inside their world and to see how human they are and how much fun they are. And I didn't run into too many vain guys. Um, Axl Rose was one of the worst ones. I've not heard a lot of pleasant things about him at any point in his career. And, you know, they were another yeah. band that just kind of just exploded right out of the gate. Yeah. You know, as, as soon as they got discovered, it just went on a crazy journey. But you mentioned Fred Corey. Uh, he played drums with Cinderella before that, wasn't it? Yes, he did. Yes. I thought so. But, but my understanding is Fred Corey was never given album credit for Cinderella. I think he was their touring drummer, right? Uh, I think he was on Long Cold Winter. I'll have to double check, okay. but I think he did get credit on that one. Okay, because I know that there was something he didn't get credit on, and then he was the touring drummer having to do with Cinderella, I believe. It could be the album before that, because he might not have done the studio session and gotten on the the tour and then did the next album with them. That happens a lot. 
I like Fred Curry. Sweet, sweet guy. Nice. Had a, had a lot of, had a lot of fun hanging out with him and Stephen Piercy when they were in arcade. And, um, we had this thing about the magazine. Um, it started with just average people that I would take pictures with, but the back cover of the magazine, I came up with this little campaign to have rock stars, music stars, whoever we could find, take pictures with them holding the magazine. And, and we had a lot of fun shooting Fred and Steve behind the, um, the Roxy that night with the magazine. They were a lot of fun to hang out with. That's awesome. I like stories like that. And then most recently you just interviewed Alice Cooper. <laughs> well, he lives yeah. in Arizona though. So that's not, you know, too big of a surprise, but you know, it's nice to get him and Cheryl on the show. It, yeah. The last time that I saw Alice and I know he has no recall of this, but he was on the back of a trash truck coming into a radio station. I worked at years ago for the, uh, the, you know, the trash tour. Mm-hmm. And that was, way long time ago but yeah. yeah they came up and it was so funny because everybody was coming into our studio the other day and um it was really fun to actually talk about not just the career but we wanted to go from a different angle um Duffy and I interviewed him and Cheryl about um they're coming up on 43 years of being married yeah so that was kind of the angle we went with was to talk to them about how you can have a successful relationship, not only working together in the industry, because they met because she was a dancer mm-hmm. in his show. Right. She auditioned for his show. So, you know, she was 18 years old when she met him and she had no interest in him. She was a trained ballerina ready to be part of his show. And it, you you hear all of this stuff and you're like, wow, you know, and, and to hear, we actually heard about things that happened in their personal life. They told us things about their personal life. And how they almost split up, how they got back together, and the commitment they made. And the most beautiful thing he ever said out of his mouth during that interview that just really surprised me, Scott, was never once did infidelity ever enter his mind. I believe that. He doesn't, you know, the, the, all the interviews that I've ever heard with him, and I, I've met him once and it was very briefly, but anytime I've heard an interview with him or anyone I know who has met him and talked with him, he seems like a very down-to-earth, genuine, nice guy. He has yes. a persona. He plays a character. And yes. I know that in the 70s, that was very, very controversial. I mean, the church was after him. It was a big deal to to the stuff he was singing about and all that. But it he's playing a character like you would if you were in a movie playing Dr. Jekyll. And it's funny because his parents were ministers. Right. Right. And his wife's parent, his wife's parents were ministers too. So they both came from that background that that gave good moral values. Mm-hmm. So in our interview with him, we actually go into depth about, you know, I, I asked him, I said, how being that you were Alice Cooper and you were doing all these things, how did your minister father feel about that? And the conversations that we had the other day were just amazing because they they opened up and shared so much about who they are privately. And I love the fact that they are so honest and there's so much awareness of things. And when people listen to that interview on Monday, they're going to be, you know, their mind's going to be blown Yeah, because we don't get, you don't get the personal side of things too often. No, because everybody wants to ask about the entertainment stuff. Tell me about this song. Tell me about how you wrote 18 or under my wheels or all these things that people are familiar with. What cracks me up the most is when I hear somebody from Deep Purple in an interview and they want them to tell the story of the song Smoke on the Water. 
the song tells you the story of Smoke on the Water. It's it's a it's a chronicle. But right. they still want to hear the story, even though there's hundreds of interviews where you can just look that up and read what they said about it. But but that's the thing is it's people, they think that that's what people want to know. I want to know the artist. You know, there's certain questions if if I were to have that opportunity with Alice. There's a couple of songs I would definitely want to know a little more about. But I would want to get to know him. And see, that's just the thing. I remember years ago, because Aerosmith was my pinnacle band growing up. Mm -hmm. And when I got assigned the cover story to interview Aerosmith for our magazine, I flipped out. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I know a lot of history on this band that people don't know of, but I'm still going to dig up some stuff. And when I interviewed the band, they were completely shocked. This is a band that had been around for 20 plus years at that point. And they're looking at me going, how the hell did you know this? Right. I'm like, I'm I'm what you call a super fan and a journalist. And if a super fan knows stuff about you, they're going to ask you. And it was, I got a call from the record label saying that they were going to include my interview in their press kit when press kits were valid back then because I asked questions about their beginnings and I knew things about their careers that nobody else had ever asked them. Right. And that's what you do. You dig in there. You, If they're willing to talk to you, which most of them are, you talk to them. And that's the one thing that I found in my whole entire career is they're human beings. If you can get past the whole celebrity thing and sit down and talk to them as a human being, it's the same thing in the acting world. You know, I've met some incredible, amazing actors and comedians that I've worked with in major movies. George Carlin's one of my favorites. Oh yeah. I love George Carlin. You down and you can have a conversation if you treat them normal and get over the whole celebrity fandom shit and just have a commercial you know conversation with them and treat them normal you know walking around in burbank at uh, heavy metal foundations forum in the 90s these were the conventions like what you do with nam and everywhere else musicians are walking all around lemmy oh my god i am so grateful that i got to meet that man before he died that guy took a magazine right out of my hand. I got a picture of it. It was in one of our magazines. He took that magazine, put it in the corner of his mouth like he was going to eat it and chew it and bite on it. And I'm just like, holy shit. He just grabs it right out of my hand while we're walking by. And I'm like, Jamie, get his picture. And and I mean, just incredible. You know, the the characters that are in this industry, they're human beings and If you take them off the stage, they're just normal people. And that's how you, if you just walk up to them and treat them normal and you don't go ballistic on them and just be a human being, you'll find that you can actually have a beer and have a conversation with somebody that you think is so unreachable because of who they are. They just want to be normal. Yeah. And I think also an important component of that is talking to them without the perception of who you think they are because of what the media does to hype them up, things that right. they've done in the past. You know, like like when I met Roger Glover from Deep Purple, I'm not going to go in and thinking, you know, talking about practical jokes they played on each other in the early 70s because that's not who he is now. Who he is now is this person who has a family and he's on tour, you know, eight months out of the year, nine months, and an amazing songwriter. I found out that he actually uh, did a lot of work with Whitesnake when Whitesnake was first starting out. He produced them. He played on the the song Whitesnake, which I would never have known 
otherwise, because that's really not documented and uh, had a great conversation with him. But if you go in with the preconceived notions, that would be like you talking to Alice Cooper about biting about Ozzy biting the head off of a bat, because that's what really (laughs) happened, you know, like get to know the person and, you know, aside from the media, aside from the songs. It's really amazing what you can find out about these people because most of them are just wonderfully amazing, sweet, intelligent people. Yeah. And the thing is, you don't really know what they go through on a personal level. And these two were married. They have three kids. They run foundations and schools. And the story behind him starting the Solid Rock Foundation blew my mind. I had no idea how that started. He saw two kids standing on the street corner doing drugs so he pulled them off the street to get them. He goes, you don't know what they're going to do if you put a guitar in their hand. Right. I mean, it's like, whoa. I mean, that's how his idea started. Yeah. That's incredible. You would have never thought that. Most most people would think, oh, you're a gigantic rock star. You want to find a way to get back. So this is the first thing you do. That didn't even enter his mind. It entered his mind to put a guitar in that kid's hand instead of drugs. Right. But if you if you're writing the article, it's more sensational to say he wanted to give back. You know, it's it's that thing that people think that there has to be a reason that there isn't just a natural response to a stimulus. And a lot of times that's what it is. Like, I don't do things to be more famous or to be more well-known or to sell more albums or more books. A lot of the stuff I do is just because it's the thing that feels like the right thing to do. You got that right. It's all about creating. It's all about sharing. It's all about inviting the rest of the world to take part of something wonderful because music is the one thing that puts us all on the same level. It's universal. It is the universal language. It speaks to us. We feel something. You you see it every time you go to a concert. Everybody is singing the songs. It puts you in a whole different level. You don't know these 50,000 people in the arena, but yet you're all singing the same song and you're doing something amazing. You're connecting on, a, on such a, what I like to call a big spiritual level. Right. And it, it puts you in a whole different light. And that's that's the incredible thing about creativity and music and the things that we do, whether we're writing singing songs, playing music, you know, driving fast cars, whatever it is, we're, there's this universal language and that's how we all are able to connect when we strip away all the BS that goes on on a daily basis because there's so much negativity out there, especially with social media, all the politicians, all the garbage that's going on. When you strip all that stuff away, we have humanity, And that's what we need to focus on, because in the end, we all bleed the same. We're all the same. It doesn't matter what we look like. doesn't matter what our preferences are. We're all the same. It's very true. And Ian Gillen, uh, who incidentally did sing Smoke on the Water, said in an interview one time, he said, I think that music is the greatest ambassador in the world. It transcends all the cultural barriers and language barriers and political barriers and all the places that the politicians and the lawyers can't reach. Because it's the one thing that's truly based on natural responsive feeling. He didn't say that part. I added that. But but that's really <laughs> what it is. Because you don't, you don't need to understand the lyrics of a song to understand the feeling of a song. You can hear the passion in the singer's voice, whether they're happy, whether they're sad, whether they're telling a story or just relating a, a moment. Uh, you can feel the music. You don't need to understand why the guitar player played that note. 
but he did. And you can just carry along with it as he's playing. You, you can break it down and you can learn things from it, or you can just take it at face value. Like I love a lot of the music from Cirque du Soleil, which is not even a real language. It's complete gibberish, except for a handful of songs that are in English. And I think one or two in French, but I, that music makes me feel because of the journey that the music takes me on. And anyone else can listen to that song and go on a journey. It may not be the same as mine, but they're going to go on something. And I think that is the thing because we don't need to be able to communicate with words or pictures or anything else. We can just close our eyes and feel and, and share with each other. Maybe somebody that you can't even speak the same language as you both look at each other and you'll smile if it's a happy song or you'll, you know, you'll give each other a sympathetic look. If it's a sad song, we all feel it almost the same way. It's just, we interpret it as a different, you know, like I, I wrote a song, the first new age song I wrote was called dreamscape. And I, when I wrote the song, I, I had a certain visual that I wrote to, and I didn't ever want to tell anybody what that visual was because I didn't want to create the experience for them. I wanted them to have the experience and then tell me what they felt. Maybe I wrote it about flying through the clouds, or maybe I wrote it about being underwater or sitting on a rock in a high place overlooking the land. It could have been anything, but I want to know what you feel when you hear that song. What did you yeah. see? You know, what was your experience? Because that's one of the beauties of music is that we're not, unless you're directed lyrically to feel something specific or live a certain experience, we can interpret it in any way that our life would draw us to interpret it. And so it's really a liquid form of art. And I think that's one of the things that I love the most about it is we can all hear the same thing and have a completely different experience. Right. And I know we were talking about this before we started the interview that um, earlier today, I mentioned this, and this goes back to 1991 for me when I was working with a local band here. And I would go to the band house and they had their big rehearsal room set up. All four of the guys rented this house together so that they could practice and do their thing. And I walked in one weekend to band practice and, you know, they're getting set up and everything. And one guy picks up an instrument, starts jamming. The next guy picks up his, starts jamming. The drummer gets up on the risers and starts going. The singer grabs his bass and he's up there. All of a sudden, these four guys are putting this thing together and they're recording it. They turn the recorder on because back then, you know, everybody had the boom boxes with the cassette tapes mm -hmm. in their practice room. So. He set that up and I'm watching this. And this is this is all something where, you know, somebody starts playing something for a minute and then the other guy starts jamming with him. And I watched as the four of these guys created a song. And then the, the singer's just spouting lyrics out, just writing stuff down and spouting lyrics out. And I'm, I got chills. I literally got chills up and down my whole entire body my hair was standing up i had a hard time shaking those chills off because for the first time in my life i experienced what it was like to watch a song being born i'm a woman i can have a child and let me tell you something watching a song be born right before your very eyes wow as a lover of music as a person who doesn't know how to pick up an instrument and play 
that gave me a whole level of appreciation for any musician, any person who's able to pick up an instrument and play, anybody that's able to use their voice and sing. That was such a mind-blowing experience. And every time I turn on a radio now, every time I hear a song, I look at it from that different perspective. And this happened, God, we're in what? That's what, 30 years ago or 20 years ago? Yeah. Something like that? Yeah. What was uh, what year did you say it was? Ninety one. Nineteen ninety one. Wow. Yeah. So going. Yeah. Getting up there. And I'm sitting here thinking, wow, mind altering, mind blowing. From that point on, I took a whole different perspective of music into my brain because witnessing that just yelling, and it wasn't just jamming; it was creation. Because they recorded the song and they put it on their album. Mm-hmm. I'm like, holy cow, I saw that song being born. Right. I mean, it's like watching, I know this is going to sound graphic, but it's like watching a baby's head crown when he's born. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's just the only way to explain it. It's a miracle. It is a miracle to, to witness something like that. And a musician will probably look at me and go, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. We do this every day. Well, yeah, for someone like me that can't, and for someone that sees the beginning process, it gives me a whole level of appreciation for the talent that you have. Well, plus you saw something that's really magical, which was the the natural, honest creation of a song. It wasn't somebody sitting down and, and writing it and then bringing it to a band, which it's also done a lot of times that way. And then the band will rework a part here and there. But you just saw the natural, this is brand new. We're just jamming and we created something in that jam that we can you know, maybe modify a little bit and pretty much put it out as we just played it. That's a pretty magical moment. And when I think about why the music from the seventies is still so universally acceptable, even to young audiences today, I think that's the reason because a lot of it did come out of just natural jams and the bands would tape what they did. One person in the band or two people would sit back and listen to the tapes from that day's rehearsal and go, Hey, I think this part's pretty good. We could probably do something with this. Or, you know, hey, if we if we change this a little bit, maybe this would work as a song. And then they start to develop them from there. They're written very naturally, very honestly, a collaboration of people that are in the same mind in that moment. Very organic. Very organic. Not not trying to be commercial, not, okay, well, if we do it this way, though, it'll probably get on the radio. You know, it's just a very spontaneous, organic moment. And those are some of the most magical moments in music for me. But I think because that was done so much in the 70s, whereas now the music that you hear is so much produced to be geared up to play on radio or to have a video that you lose a little bit of that natural feel because of the strategy that's involved. Right. Well, I I love that you had that experience and I could talk to you for hours. (laughs) (laughs) Which we have. Which we have. Uh, But thank you so much for Victim No More. I think it's a fabulous book. I think a lot of people can really benefit with it from this book. Uh, What are the formats that the book is available in right now? Um, Right now, it's available in paperback and ebook, and it's available on Amazon. Or, you know, if you want a special copy, you can always get in touch with me and I can uh, do something special for you with it. But yeah, it's available in both formats on Amazon. So, uh, so that would be Kindle then for the uh, for the digital, right? I believe so. Yes. Okay, great. 
Well, I will have the links in the show notes. And uh, seriously, if you if you are going through something, if you know someone's going through something, uh, this is a great inspirational book. It doesn't have to be a marriage issue or a domestic issue. It can be anything really, because even though the subject matter may be specific, uh, I think that it can be very inspirational for anybody who needs to be motivated to get out of their rut, to make a change in their life that can potentially lead them to a happy life. Because if you're unhappy, you're not meant to be unhappy. Something's wrong. Find a way to figure it out and change it. You deserve, everybody deserves to live a happy life unless you've given that up. Uh, you know, unless you've done something to hurt other people, then I have kind of a different stance sometimes, depending on what it is, like your, like your friend who, uh, you know, lied to you and injected you with stuff. I, I, it's, it's too much to go into, but I, I really go back and forth between the, he's given up his right because he's hurt other people versus, okay, but he also did something and he can change and he can learn from that and potentially down the road recover it's it's a whole nother show <laughs> to, to talk about exactly. that. Exactly. Uh, but thank you so much for that book. I'm glad you put it out there. And uh, I just hope that uh, it's connecting with a lot of people. I hope so too. And, and I'm hoping that the next series of books that I work on will eventually do the same thing. So it's just, just a pattern. I write a different way. I don't make up stories. Everything is reality-based with me. So that makes it tougher for me when I do write stuff. But you know, that's how you reach out to people and you show everyone that, hey, you know, we all go through these things. It's what we do with it that makes the difference. Well, was there something that you learned in the process of, of writing Victim No More as far as that, you know, because you're writing true stories about yourself that you find will help you with the next book, make it a little easier? The tough thing about the next book that I'm struggling with is now I'm actually sitting down and writing it as a book author. And it's difficult because when I wrote the first one, it was more about getting the truth out. And I did it in the blog form. And then everybody encouraged me after I did it in the blog form to a book. So I had already pretty much written it and I was just doing like what I would pretty much call a journal intro journal entry every day and allowing people into my world. Mm-hmm. And I had people prompting me every day, when are you going to write more? We want to know the rest of the story. When are you going to write more? So it just took on a life of its own. So the second one I've been struggling with because it's more structure based where you have to sit down and actually work through it. And I have six books in various stages of being done because some of these things go back 30 years where when I first started writing. So what I'm trying to do is just put a little bit more structure into myself, but life constantly gets in the way with everything happening. So that's where it's more difficult. Plus I'm writing blog entries every day to help inspire everybody. So doing that kind of takes me out of the mode to actually want to write another book because yeah, it's hard. It really is hard because you have to, to be a successful author and get books done. You really got to, program yourself into believing, okay, well, I can do this and I need to set time aside. And that's why I took my trip to New York last year was to help me to get on the program to finish the next book, because that one's going to be a biggie. That one's going to be very difficult to write because it involves other people and it involves a subject matter that's difficult to talk about because of etiquette 
Um, a lot of people don't really understand that side of things. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be more about a journey and showing people that we all have this ability to do these things. We just don't really see that or we don't want to believe it. But it involves real life people. And I have to be careful how I talk about death and suicide concerning real life people because I don't want to hurt any of the existing family members that are still living. Yeah, that does definitely become a a difficult ground, but I'm sure that you will find a way to be tactful and decent about it. Uh, Sometimes things need to be said. And I think, though, that you'll find which side of the line each issue falls on. I I trust in you that you'll be able to to do that well. Yeah, it's just a struggle internally because I want to make sure to honor certain people in the right ways without um, putting all of the details out there. But there's certain situations, even revolving around 9-11, that I have to be very, very careful with because those families have been through so much. And the last thing I want to do is add any harm, any any ill will, any bad emotions towards them. And it's just going to be a very delicate situation to write about. And I'll get there. That book will be out by the end of next, actually the end of this year. I keep thinking oh. I'm in 2018. I'm going to make it a point to really get that book finished this year because it has been in the makings for 30 years. So, I mean, you know, it's, it starts out with just experiences that you go through when you're a child into your adulthood and things that happen and that things that just don't make sense, that eventually you realize makes sense. Right. So it's just a journey. It's a journey that we, we all go through and we just have to put it down and get it out. And that's, that'll be the next big book that I have. And I'm, I'm trying to make sure that I get that commitment done to have it done this year. Well, you know, you've got my full support and anything I can do to help. You just need to let me know. Kick me on the butt once in a while when I need it. (laughs) Oh, I have no problem doing that. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's actually uh, been quite a, quite a long one. I think I'm going to have to break this one into two episodes. Uh, which actually works really nicely because I'll be out of town uh, next week. So I would have been under a little more pressure to get a show done. So that uh, thank you for for having so much to say, because it's, it's all been very vital and very helpful. And uh, I'm so glad that that you uh, were able to make some time to come on the show. Thank you, Robin, so much. Oh, Scott, for you, the world, sweetheart. Thank you for letting me be part of it with you. Oh, thank you. I, our, our, uh, our appreciation for each other is quite mutual as, you know, as it has been over the years. And uh, I cannot wait to read this next book. And uh, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. So you take care, but keep in touch. Come back on the show when you're ready to talk about that one. And we'll see uh, how, how much we can get the word out for you. Absolutely. And if anybody wants to reach me, you can just find me. I'm all over social media. And my website is robincote.com, R-O-B-I-N-C-O-T-E.com. And we're going to have the links in the show notes as well. So uh, people can just click on them and uh, be able to reach you. But yeah, uh, great, great work so far. I'm glad that you're back in radio and keep heading in the direction you're doing. Because if you follow your heart and your intuition, it's going to keep leading you where you want to be. That's what I'm all about, sweetheart. I ain't going nowhere yet. Damn right. You take care, Robin. Come back and see us again. You got it, Scott. Take care. Bye-bye. I got to say, Robin's life has just been a, a crazy, crazy ride, but she survived it all. And I am so honored to call her friend. She's such an amazing and sweet and big-hearted woman 
that uh, you can't help but to just absolutely love her and want to see her succeed in everything. So thanks, Robin, for coming on the show. We'd love to have you back again when the next book comes out. In the meantime, thank you guys for listening to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I will be back next week with a new episode, but hopefully I will be back on Saturday with a show telling you about my experiences at NAM 2019. And uh, in the meantime, you guys take care, leave a rating, leave a review, tell your friends, enjoy. Thank you very much. 